Richard, when you were in college, like when we were in classes, because you, you had this full-time stuff going on, you were working, did you ever sit in class and just think, what the hell am I doing here? Like, leading up to that dropout, or like, what were, what, how, how did you feel in college, even though you have this like full-time gig going and you have such an important job? I was just sitting in there and I'm like, dude, what am I doing here, man? Why am I, why am I listening to astronomy? Like, what, do, what is there, what does this have to do with what I'm doing already? And I'm already making good money at the bank. I'm saving everything that I have. I'm putting my money in, in the stock market. I'm buying all these these trades. Like I was, you know, shorting AIG already at that time. I was buying Bank of America stock. I was in the markets already, you know, at 19, 20 years old. So I just didn't see that it made a lot of sense. And um, I was like, yo, I'm done with this. All right, so welcome to the Onyx and Gall Show. Today we have a guest who is living the dream. That's right, traveling the world, doing his thing, young, you know, and has a really tremendous story. I love his story. It's it's very. I think when I was when I was really reading up about his story, what I found fascinating about him was it's it's so versatile. It's like he's got he's done so many different things, and everything he's touched, he's succeeded on. So, you know, there's a certain point at which it's not luck, it's not coincidence, it's systems. It's something he's doing that's allowing him to succeed in pretty much everything he does. Um, and a lot of us dream of like that life, right? That life where we could pack and go, be free, travel, do what we want. Well, he's actually doing it. And right now he's joining us from one of his travel adventures. Um, and so this is, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's proof is in the pudding, as they say. I'm really excited. I will tell you that we were introduced by a mutual friend. And um, the quote that got my attention that I'm going to misquote him, of course, but this was like the idea that was, hey, I asked my friend, I said, well, what, is, what does this guy stand for? Like, what's his thing? What does he really stand behind? And he said, well, he believes that if you feel like you're stuck in life or if you feel like you're stuck, you're not actually stuck. You're just uneducated. And I was like, ooh, now that that sounds that sounds intriguing. That sounds interesting. I want to dive deeper into that. Um, and then as I started researching him and learning more about him, um, it's been really interesting to see multiple companies, definitely a serial entrepreneur, um, but doing it the right way while living the life that all of us dream of having. So help me welcome to the show today officially, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Garcia. Richard, welcome to the show. What's up, Anik? How's it going, man? Uh, it's going. Yeah, man, it's going great. Thank you for being here. Richard, I'm going to dive right in. Something I find fascinating about your story is you dropped out of college um, and then you went on to do a bunch of random stuff. Now, I, random in my eyes, maybe not random in your eyes. Right. So you drop. So you you're in college. You drop out of college. You're a loan officer at Bank of America. After dropping out of college, you actually get promoted. You're like in like the the investing private banking arena, which I found fascinating. You would think that they would demand a degree for that. And then somehow you just end up at like talent recruiting and you end up like you're at like recruiting developers and tech people. And, and then you end up in real estate and then you end up in, I don't know. It's, it's just like such a crazy story. First and foremost, let's talk about that decision to drop out of college. What was that about? What was going on there? Give me the story behind that. Yeah, I came from a family that uh, wasn't college educated. Um, so I didn't actually have uh, parents that 
uh, had college degrees. So I was never raised looking at education as an essential way to build a life, financials, making money, success. It was really based off of the hard work equals success concept. So my, uh, my main focus when I actually got out of high school, which was in 2008, which was a great time to, to get out of high school, uh, was start working to just get a, get a job. So I immediately got a job at uh, Bank of America. I was actually, interesting enough, for six months prior to Bank of America, I was working at WAMU, Washington Mutual. And now kind of, you know, with the era of where we're at right now, with banks kind of failing and, and the situations that are happening in this very moment, um, it's interesting because WAMU is the biggest bank that's ever been recorded as a failure in, in, in history. So I got picked up off of um, off that failure. And I went over as a what's called a sales and service specialist working at, at Bank of America, which is a semi-hybrid teller slash personal banker. And that was my first entry point into the bank. My job was to do half counting at the, at the station. And then the other half was uh, selling financial products and services, primarily checking accounts, savings accounts, credit cards. Uh, did that for about six months, 12 months, and then moved up into a personal banker position where I um, I was selling completely financial products and services on a daily basis. And that simultaneous to going to school was challenging. You know, I would go to, I'd go to school at 6.30 at night. I would have to close the banking center at six. I'd have to drive really fast to get to FSU. Um, once I would get there, I would run into class. I would always, I was always late. And then I would stay until about 11 o'clock and then I would start the next day and I would start the, I would open the bank in the morning as well. It's interesting. Um, and, you know, just thinking about those days when you open a bank, if you've ever thought about um, what's the process to open a banking center, it's actually, there's a lot of security that's involved and you have to get there really, really early in the morning because it's you and two other associates from the office every single day. And you have to all sit in your cars for 15 to 20 minutes prior to the banking center opening up. And you all have to be on the lookout for somebody that could potentially rob you on the way into the banking center when you're getting in in the morning. So my my job early in the morning every day was to get there very early and sit in the in the um, in my car and watch to see if any, you know, if there was any criminal criminal activity or anything that was going to take place. And we got robbed a few times at the bank. Uh yeah. You say that wait, well, you say say that so nonchalantly, like ah, we got robbed a few times. Holy crap! Uh, yeah, I mean, like gunpoint type stuff. No, no, it wasn't at gunpoint. It was with note. So they would come into the bank and they would leave a note on the table and they'd say, "Just give me all your money." And you wouldn't really know that a teller got robbed until five or ten minutes after the teller would just you know passively come up to the manager like a little shaken and, and said hey like this person gave me this note said i have a gun put uh put some money from your second drawer because we had a first drawer on the top that had less money and a second drawer on the bottom that had way more money wow. and uh yeah so well okay I, I gotta ask a lot of questions about that so then we'll we'll go back to like you dropping out of college and whoa so sure. all right so did those did those people get caught or did they get away with it? The ones who robbed the bank? Well, I, I was in Tallahassee. So for me, I had moved from Miami to Tallahassee to go to school at FSU. And Tallahassee sits on a border between Georgia and Alabama. So it was a really 
a really interesting place for banks because you could rob a bank in Florida and then go over the border of Georgia and dis- and essentially disappear. And there was no jurisdiction for those police officers wow. in, in Florida to go into the into Georgia and chase after the, you know, the um, the robber. So uh, so we saw a lot of robberies, you know, in that area. That's that was yeah. primarily where they were attacked. Yeah, that. Wow. So, okay. So they didn't get caught. Like how much money would you typically have? Like what would they walk away with? Um, probably like 10, 15 grand, you know, that's what normally you would get if you went to a bank and you were to put, you know, uh, a note on the table, probably about 10 to 15. It's crazy. Cause last year, the bank that we go to that, um, that I bank at, like it's a regional bank here, um, in suburbia and it got robbed. And uh, legit, like, because the way I know is three days later, I happened to go into the bank to do something and there's like security everywhere. I'm like, look, what's going on? I've been going to that bank for 20 years. And the guy, same guy, the same person who takes care of my account, has been, he's the one who opened my first account ever. Um, he's still sitting there and he's like, very, just like how you said it. He's like, oh, we got robbed. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, yeah, we got robbed. I'm like, does that happen often? Because I'm pretty freaked out. You, you don't seem freaked out. He's like, no, I mean, he's like, it's never happened here before. And like, they never got, the person never got caught. I found that fascinating. Um, <clears throat> do, do banks, do you know, do banks still open that way today? Like, is that still a protocol? Like this whole, like, go early, stay, sit around, watch. Why wouldn't the banks just, I don't know, is it too expensive to just hire security to do that? Like, why are they asking employees to be on the lookout like that? uh i just for checks and balances i guess Uh, but yeah they're still doing that they've been doing that for a long time that that's crazy wow all right so okay so back to the story that that was a crazy so what time would you go to the bank in the morning then because you said you'd leave at six six o'clock what time were you there in the morning yeah i had to be there by 6 30 so that i could wait in the parking lot by seven o'clock I would then open the banking center so that like all the employees could come in, right? And then once the employees would come in, it'd be between seven and about like 8.30, almost nine before we'd have our team meeting. So then we would open the banking center and I'd spend my whole day selling products and services. Yeah. So how old were you during this time? Because I find it fascinating that they trusted, you're pretty young, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm almost I'm almost 40 now. I'm 34. So um, I, I look a little young, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more tenured than what I wanted to, to throw out there today. But at that time, how, how young were yeah. you when you were opening banks? I was. Uh, so when I started at WAMU, I was 18 and um, and I was a teller there. By the time I became a personal banker, I was 19. I remember we were joking inside of the break room in the back because I was selling mortgages to the um uh, you know, to, to the customers. And I, I couldn't even drink alcohol yet, like legally. So, so something interesting that we kind of have in common, but kind of not, I certainly did not work at banks that got robbed, but I was a financial planner. So when I was in college, I was not 21 yet. I could not drink yet. And I was a financial planner. I was managing at one point, I think it was like $19 million under management. I had like people who were like 50, 60 years old, had their retirement accounts under my account. Um, now I wasn't actively managing the money. So I was more of the salesperson. So we would bring it in and then there were like money managers who were managing it. But um, we had the same joke that I could barely afford to buy myself a car, yet I was managing $19 million of other people's money. Um, it was an interesting experience. And so I'm sure, you, all right, so you, you would get there at 6.30 and you'd work till six, this is a long day. Then you rush to college and you, so, was it burnout that led you to just dropping out of college? What what made you say like this just isn't worth it? Yeah, I mean, in two thousand and eleven, 
you know, the bank started to recover a little bit. I'd already been there since 2008. So I was going on, you know, like four years or so. And um, I went and applied uh, to Merrill Lynch. And I, I applied to Merrill Lynch down in Miami, in Miami, in a, a branch in, in Coral Gables. And Merrill Lynch had just been purchased out by Bank of America after we got the injection of money from Warren Buffett that saved us. Because I remember buying... Bank of America stock when I was 19 and 20 years old at $3, you know, three, four bucks today, wow. you know, 40, you know, it's 40 plus or whatever. So, um, so when we got that injection from, from Buffett, it opened up a bunch of new opportunities at the, at the bank. And we, the people over at Merrill started to poach the best talent from Bank of America retail. So I applied and I got the job and it was a $90,000 job at the time. So I was 20, wow. I was 21 years old and I was making, it was exactly $88,000 when, um, for my, my offer letter. And, um, and then there was like a, a, a benefit that the, that the, uh, firm would also provide to me based off of the success rate of the financial advisor that I was reporting to. So as, as he did better or well for the, for the customer, for our clients, um, we got like this kind of dividend payment as well. So that was another couple grand a month. So we, it was a six figure job, you know? So I, I was like, why am I gonna, why am I gonna, why am I gonna finish school if I'm already making, you know, six figures? This shatters so many preconceived notions. I would have never in my wildest dreams thought that a bank, <clears throat> especially banks of the size that you're talking about, would be offering people six-figure jobs that don't have degrees or that would be actually allowing it, you know, I guess it go, well, I guess I say that, but at the same time, I was working for a financial planning firm and out there, you know, bringing in capital and I didn't have a degree at that time, but that's interesting. So for people watching right now, um, wow, you're 22 years old, six-figure job. I mean, it was, ex what got you that job? Was it the experience? Was it the four plus years that you had been in the industry? Was that kind of like the big thing that pushed you into it? Or was there something specific that you had that they loved that they gave you that offer? There was two things. So the first was that I had already been at the bank for a while. So I knew a lot of the internal systems that they were going to migrate over to Merrill Lynch and use that Bank of America was already using. So I was already, I was already trained. And that goes to the second thing, which is, the bank was training me from 2008 up until I went to Merrill Lynch. And even at Merrill Lynch, I was being trained internally. So they had spent easy six figures on training all of the, you know, kind of the green associates that they were bringing in for that, that next um, 10 or 15 year tenure. And when I came in in 2008, 2009, they had let go of a lot of the previous tenured people that were there for, for a while. So a lot of the bankers that had been there for 15 years, for 10 years, in fact, the reason why I got the personal banker job that kind of set me up for that next step was because there was a dude that had been inside that position for like five years and he was demanding too much money at the time. And so they moved him to another financial uh, branch and I got his position because I was like the next in line there. I got, you know, it was a little bit of luck, but it was also timing. This is back in 2011. 2011 getting a six-figure job offer and versus today i mean it's not, that's a big big deal it's a big deal today it's a big big deal back then but i find something fascinating so i want to i want to drive this point for everyone who's listening you said you were four years at the bank 
we usually spend four years in a degree. The difference here was most college graduates, even today, forget 2011, even today, do not graduate and get a six-figure job. So one of the things I'm pulling away here is just how much more your four years of experience was worth. Now, I'm not trying to promote everybody drop out of college, but I am trying to promote to those who don't think college is right. Look at our man Richard here. I mean, this is a prime story and example of where just experience trumped the, the degree. Um, Richard, when you were in college, like when we were in classes, because you, you had this full-time stuff going on, you were working. Did you ever sit in class and just think, what the hell am I doing here? Like leading up to that dropout or like what were, what, how, how did you feel in college, even though you have this like full-time gig going and you have such an important job? The day I realized that I could not keep going with my education in college was when I was sitting in an astronomy course and I had to take it because I was forced to, because it was like one of the chosen potential electives that I needed to take to complete my degree. And I was studying political science and macroeconomics. So that was my main, my main focus. And, um, I was just sitting in there and I'm like, dude, what am I doing here, man? Why am I, why am I listening to astronomy? Like, what do, what is there, what does this have to do with what I'm doing already? And I'm already making good money at the bank. I'm saving everything that I have. I'm putting my money in, in the stock market. I'm buying all these, these trades. Like I was, you know, shorting AIG already at that time. I was buying Bank of America stock. I was in the markets already, you know, at 19, 20 years old. So I just didn't see that it made a lot of sense. And um, I was like, yo, I'm done with this. You know, I'm going to see if I can get it. Obviously, I didn't pull the trigger on it until I secured a better job at Merrill Lynch. That's when I actually made the move. What? what <clears throat> you're so young. What made you so hungry? I mean, you've got a job. You're going to college. Now you said you were trading. I remember reading that about you and I was researching you too. It was just that you had made like 600 plus thousand dollars trading by the time you were very at, at a very young age. Why are you doing all this? Most, most 20 year olds, man, are out there drinking and like, you know, putting fart cans on their cars and drag racing stupid shit. And like, what do you, what made you just say like, no, I'm going to work extra hard to, I don't know, what, what was going on in your head uh, that other people can listen and copy? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you got to go through through. Um, I think sometimes you have to go through tough parts of your life in order to, you know, take a full advantage of the opportunities that are put in front of you. And, you know, I, I had two things I that I you kind of was raised off of. The first was that, um, you know, my family didn't have money. I came from Miami, and in Miami, my grandparents had come over from Cuba. So they didn't have any history in the United States, any income. And my grandfather was my, you know, he was like my, um, I looked up to him, right? He was, he was a big man to me, but he was also somebody that made $3 an hour working in a factory for 50 years. And he, um, you know, and he, he, he didn't amount to much from a success standpoint. He also didn't invest his money. He didn't put it to work. And he told me all the time, he's like, you know, you, you should work in the government. You should work for 20 years. You should get yourself your pension. You should retire after 20 years and you should live a, a nice life like that. And uh, it was interesting because I had friends of mine that went to private school and they would drive around in super nice cars and they would 
um, you know, they had these beautiful houses with, you know, with rich parents. And when I would go over to their house, I saw a completely different side of life that I, I didn't have. Then when I worked at the bank, that was a completely different life too, because I got to see people that would come in that were wearing sandals and stained jeans and had millions of dollars in their account. And I saw the guys coming in that had Mercedes and the suits, and they were arguing with me for overdraft fees. And I'm just like, this is a realization here. Um, and then I got the I got the like the biggest epiphany, which was working at Merrill Lynch when we only managed 70 clients and all of their families. And the 70 clients had an average portfolio of $100 million and above. So they didn't have anything less than that. And our average tip, our average client had about between, you know, give or take $500 million. So we had Outback Steakhouse, Ashley Furniture, and we had some of the biggest names, family names in the, in the, in the world. So these guys would call in and my job was actually not simple, but not easy. I was what's called a client advisor. So my job at Merrill was to do their wire transfers was to send their family money, you know, if they needed like a cousin or a brother or anybody needed money to send it from a specific account. And I basically was the uh, the liaison to their their transactions. And then I had, a, you know, obviously there was a financial planner, there was a financial advisor, there was a, it was a, like a family office for the rest of the, um, for the clients. So when I saw one day, one of the guys um, that I was servicing, he calls in and he says, hey, I'm buying a Lamborghini. You need to send me some money. And I said, all right. So I sent him, you know, $300,000. And he then the next day, he says, hey, um, I should have received a wire transfer for $150,000. And I'm like, okay, what, you know, can I ask what this is for so I can put it on the reporting? And he's like, it's the same Lamborghini. I just sold it the next day. I'm, I'm taking a loss. And I'm like, okay, why, why are you taking a loss for $150,000 if you don't mind me asking? And he's like, well, I didn't fit in the Lamborghini. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't understand that, you know, that didn't make sense to me because that was the amount of money that I was going to make. That was more than what I was making for the entire year slaving away for this guy and for the, all these other families. So I had no concept really of how much wealth there really was out there until, until that time. And, um, you know, I had been trading a little bit, but I was still thinking small, you know, still doing small transactions. And um, it wasn't until then that I, 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 I woke up, you know, I was like, this is, there's a lot of money out there to be made. What's a million dollars a month? $12 million a year. What's $12 million a year when they're printing a trillion dollars to, you know, they're printing a trillion dollars in two, two minutes, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, so looks like that, that bank, the timing, the, the, the early starting your early career at bank was just like very de defining for you Defined your thought processes, your possibilities. Um, we'll move past this real quick, but because you have such a deep background with banking, um, what, do you think about our current banking situation with Silicon Valley Bank and with just it being rolled out? Do you think there's, do you think there's, uh, well, you do a lot of real estate too, right? This is something we're probably going to get into in this interview. What is your macro level view of banking, economy, recession, depression? You know, what, get a little bit, you know, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's a few different ways you can see banking, but you know, I think the main thing is you're going to see it very similar in the United States, at least if that's what we're referring to, um, as you would see in a second world or even a third world country at some point, we're going to see just large, massive institutions that buy up or own all of the other smaller regional banks. And 
we, we can't prevent this monopoly from happening. It's, it's likely to continue um, to happen. And if you go to any third world country or any second world country, it already exists. This is already the way that those countries operate. You know, there isn't um, capitalism like you would think in these countries, like there is in the United States. So it's very much the case that banks like JP Morgan, uh, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, these are the banks that are going to own the everything in the United States. They're going to own the, the the land. They're going to own the real estate. They're going to own they're going to own it all, right? From a financial perspective, because they have the direct injection of printed money. So unless we separate the direct injection of printed money to the banks, and the banks can then charge whatever they want on all of that that money prior to giving it to us, that's never going to change, which is why we're seeing CBDCs become the big topic. Because if a CBDC can be created, then it, it very well makes it easier for the Federal Reserve to send money that's printed directly to the consumer and skip the banking process, which would actually create um, some, some tension on the banks, you know, limit their size. It would make lesser of a monopoly on them. And, uh, and so I, I do think that we'll probably see a CBDC become a big factor of how printed money gets sent over to a consumer. But printed money is a problem nonetheless, because now it's just a number on a screen at that point when it's a CBDC. So you can just continue to create more and more artificial amounts of money. And the second is you can control based off of the, the way that that money is used you can control where it's used, how much is used, whether it can be used or it cannot be used. So it's kind of like if you were to drive a Tesla right now and Tesla says, well, we're going to turn it off because you didn't make your payment. So they can do the same thing with your wallet. You know, They can also say, well, we're not going to allow you to make payments to these other auto dealerships. So you're not going to be able to use this money to go and buy these other cars. We're only going to let you pay money to Tesla or GM or anything. And so having the control uh, over all of the all of the money is is the end result here, and and from a government perspective, that makes a lot of sense because that gives an incredible amount of power, not just to the Federal Reserve, but also to the governments as a whole globally. Scary stuff. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with you. I see that going in that route. I read this morning when I woke up, and again, this might be a little dated for people that are watching because we're pre, we're pre recording the episode. But I woke up this morning, so we are what uh, at the time that I'm recording this, we're about a week out from SVB's whole collapse, and we're about four or five days out from the time that the government quote unquote bailed out SVB. I know it's controversial to say bailed out, but it's the easiest term to think of. Um, and this morning I woke up and I saw Bank of America got $15 billion in additional deposits due to the SVB fallout. And they're saying that's just the early reporting. It's going to be a lot more than that. Um, so, you know, it makes sense as a, as a customer who's like, if I take off my hat of worrying about the economy and worrying about freedoms and all of that, and I'm just, you know, I worry about my money. It makes sense for me to just give it to the top three, four banks and not do regional banking because there's no benefit for me to do regional banking. Um, the big four can't fail. If they fail, the world comes to an end. If they fail, then, well, my money's not worth much anyway, so so be it. So we know the big four can't fail. The regional can. Um, and so it's like, it, it's, it's an interesting dilemma where I'm like, yeah, 
from a selfish perspective, I can see me wanting to give my money to the big banks because it makes sense. And, but that's exactly how the big banks get their power. And so we are going in that route. And I think it's in the, in, in inevitable, unless there was like this massive disruptive move by the government to stop it. But doing that hurts the government and their control. So why would they make that disruptive move? So it's uh it's an interesting conundrum. Um, I want to pivot here. I want to, Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna, I was gonna give you just a little, a little um, quick story. Um, yeah. Historically, from a financial perspective, um, there's an there's a really interesting uh, story about these African beads that were used in the past. So, way back when, before slavery took place, right? So, before slavery was a thing, the British came over and they realized that in Africa they were using beads to transact, and so these beads were the equivalent of money, right? So they would use a bead and they would, and every time they would go into do a transaction, they would exchange these beads, right? That was their equivalent of money. The way that slavery transpired was actually because in, in, in at the time they were manufacturing the beads in a different country and then bringing them in and flooding the market and then, of, of course, by flooding the market and creating art of all this inflation with those beads and, um, uh, you know, obviously when you're making it, it becomes very difficult for you to uh, lose power because you have a facility that literally makes those beads. You were, you were seeing that they were using it to pull in all of the other beads in the market, right? So they were basically exchanging it and pulling in all of that power. And eventually what they were doing is creating debt against the African nation at the time. And those that had all that debt had to work, right? They had to become servants in some capacity to get a bead and pay back their debt. And eventually what ended up going thereafter was that they just said, you know what? We have to go somewhere else because there's no work for us to do here. We have to go somewhere else and get on a ship, go somewhere else and work because we have to pay off this debt. And that led to, you know, that was actually one of the biggest uh, um, leads into slavery, right? It was money and it was money manipulation that was what led um, into slavery. It's one of the most, um, I think, uh, early recordings of um, of hyperinflation on on an asset. Or you know, a liability, I guess. Was so was so that was strategic on the British perspective. They they knew what they were doing. They they wanted that. They wanted to basically en enslave the the entire country. And I mean, if you if you think about the British and what they did in other parts of the world, um, even in India, the way they approached India, because obviously we've learned a lot about that and I've studied that being Indian, but. Um, it was very strategic. People think like these things just came to, and it was super strategic. The way they came to India, they, they actually had a rule, divide and conquer, um, which dictated how they took the country. Um, and it was interesting to see how even a lot of Indians were actually enslaved. It, it was, it, it's an interesting backstory, um, but I did not know this. This is a really interesting thing, and I think our, our listeners are going to really appreciate hearing it. I don't think they'll love it because obviously no one's going to love anything that started slavery. But you know what? The big point I take away from this is hyperinflation and the government and the powers to be flooding the market with money is a long-term problem. What the hell have we just been doing the last few years? They're flooding the market with money. So wake up, people, is what I've been saying for a long time. It's it's It feels good right now. But, and and then you know what? Get this, Richard. 
um, the last stat I heard, and I don't remember the exact number, was that the American consumers are at the highest they've ever been in consumer debt. Credit cards and loans are at the highest they've ever been. So there you go. There you go. Now they're going to have to they're going to have to work to pay that off. Yeah, it's like how how do you how how have you printed so much money but yet we're at the highest rate of debt, right? And so that that was the whole trick to begin with. It was print the money but then get them into debt. Wow. Eventually, you know. Yeah, it's 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 scary stuff. I mean, people really just I don't think people have the intellect as a mass and I don't say that derogatorily or negatively. I just mean literally we aren't taught we aren't taught to know this stuff by design. The, I always wonder, like, why don't we teach money to kids? Like, why why don't we teach how money works, how money compounds? Why don't we teach things about taxes? Why don't we teach things about leadership? Because it actually doesn't serve the 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 overall encompassing um, purpose. But uh, all right, so let's let's change gears a little bit. Um, that was a fascinating conversation about the banking space. I think we could have gone for hours about that. But I want to change gears. Um, the quote you said, if you feel stuck, you're not really stuck. You're uneducated. Dive deeper into that for me. Yeah, I had, um, I had an epiphany one day, um, when I was younger, I was, I was stuck. You know, I, I didn't know how to break through my first hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, someone told me, and I, I can't honestly, I, I can't even remember exactly who it was. It wasn't somebody that I really looked up to or anything. It was just a kind of passerby. Or, I was like, maybe you just don't know it well enough. And that they said that about something that I was interested in at the time, right? And I, I started realizing, you know what? I'm missing fundamentally about 20 hours worth of information here that I just really don't know. And that's what I've now told myself every single time I get stuck. So whenever I get stuck and I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I'm not succeeding in this space or I'm not, for some reason, I'm not understanding this well enough. I am literally just missing 20 hours of deep diving into this. And it's not about just surface level going into you know YouTube. It's actually, sometimes it's a little bit of pay to play, right? It's actually paying for some information, going deeper into the knowledge um, whole. And uh, sometimes it's even accelerating it, you know, and what I call the fast pass is like going and paying someone that already has done it before you to go and teach you how to do it. So that's something that I'm a big advocate in as well. You know, that's how I learned how to trade stocks better. That's how I got into real estate. I, I got ahead of everybody else simply because I knew that if I paid a little bit of money to jump ahead of them, it would be kind of like going to Disney. I hate going to Disney World and standing in line for two hours to go on a 30 second ride. It doesn't make any sense for me, you know, but, and I pay for it with my time if I do that and I won't get to enjoy the rest, but I am way more willing to spend five or 10 bucks on getting a little fast pass that I can skip the line, go there at the right time, walk all the way to the front. And how does that feel when you do that too? Like when you get to the front of the line, you're walking past that hour long wait, and just like, Ooh, I got right to the front. You know, my time's ready. I get to jump on my, my ride. I can even maybe ride it twice today. If I get, you know, if I get another fast pass, that experience is, is fantastic. And it's the same thing in life, you know, take the fast pass. Don't, don't just wait in line. Most people are just standing there like, okay, when is it my time? And by doing that, you can waste, I mean, just think about it. 
if you live 90 years, you actually didn't really live fully 90 years. You lived about 60 years and 30 of those years you were sleeping. So, you know, your life didn't really turn off in those 30 years that you were sleeping. You were still alive and, and you were still conscious. So you got to figure out how to make money for that one third of your life while you are asleep. It's essential. And that takes you learning something that, like you were saying, it is very, very, very intentional that you do not get brought up learning about money. It's it's 100% manufactured for a reason in that way. It's so that if you want to learn about money, you need to go and take the initiative to go learn about money. It isn't about somebody saying, hey, I'm just going to teach you to become a millionaire, right? You actually need to have that desire um, to want to do it, right? And uh, so, yeah, that was... That was an epiphany that I had on that on that quote. I uh, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I'll tell you what I've seen. You know that uh, what was the site? It's it's, it's really funny because I, I think it the creation of the site alone just showed you how lazy I think we were getting uh, as a society when it was like let me Google that for you dot com or something like that. And 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 uh, it was always like it was um, someone asked a friend or someone a stupid question. You would just be like you'd send them a link to like, let me Google that for you. So it's like, just go to the site, like Google, seriously. And what I have found that's fascinating with a lot of people and a lot of students and a lot of people that will join, it's like, we don't take ownership over our own things anymore. We don't take ownership over our own success, our own life, our own. Um, I turn to the resources today. In today's world, we have more resources than we've ever had at our fingertips. I mean, you can get a book Instant. Like if you if you want to get Warren Buffett's knowledge, you can have it right now in 20 seconds. You go to Amazon, go to Kindle, boom, download. Ah, the book is there. There's a gazillion videos on Facebook, on YouTube that talk about his his investing th- ideologies. There's tons of articles written on Google. I mean, the amount you can learn today about any topic is mon- is monumental. Now we've got all this Chat GPT and AI and direct answers. I mean, it's just getting easier and easier. But what I have found is like an exactly inverse correlation. The easier it is getting to get information, the less I'm finding people wanting to go get information. And it's just fascinating to me because I'm not in that. I'm going and I'm absorbing as much as I can. And then people will ask me, hey, how are you so successful? And how is it that you've made millions of dollars? Well, it's because, for example, this year, 2023, one of my big goals is social media. I really want to work on our organic content game. I want to get this podcast to the top rankings. So I didn't just go to one of my team members and say, hey, figure it out, make this happen. I'm in the weeds. I'm studying. I'm researching. I'm learning. I'm reading. I'm watching. I'm trying to figure out what is it? How does how do these things work? So you're 100% right. My podcast was stuck for four years, I felt, in its same. It's doing great, but it wasn't really like taken off the way I wanted it to. I was uneducated. I didn't know how to promote and market and what makes some podcasts take off and some not. I went, got educated. We did a bunch of changes and now I feel like we've set the podcast up to be able to do that. So for everyone who's watching, just what are you, what are you currently educating yourself on? What is your current biggest challenge in your life? What is it? Is it your health? Is it your wealth? Is it your relationship? You know, how many people right now are in horrible relationships or are having relationships that are going south? I get a lot of people ask me that too. They say, hey, you know, you have a great relationship with your wife. How do you have that? I'm like, that's not by chance, man. We work on it. It's an active process. And I've read books on how how to communicate, how to have a relationship. So what's the big challenge you have in your life? And be honest. You don't have to tell us. Be honest with yourself right now. What the hell are you doing about it? 
are you actually out there learning how to fix it? So I really like that. And I think that's a core message I really wish people to take away with today is like, you know, what, what the heck can you learn more about where you're having some challenges? Um, so that realization for you, Richard, what, where did it come? Did it come somewhere along? Was that early in your entrepreneurial career? Like later, when did you meet that person what, like in your timeline of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so uh, real fast to bring up a point on what you just mentioned, because you you went on a you went on a preach there, which was strong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like preach. Monologue. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think the thing about this AI and all these awesome technologies that are coming out is that the reason why people are not searching for the answers as much is because there's fatigue. You know, they're going through decision fatigue more than they've ever been before. And when you're going through this decision fatigue, you don't know where and what direction you want to go into because there's so many options. And you feel this in everything. When you're on Instagram, when you're watching Netflix, you can't decide. There's oh too many God. options to choose. So, so many nights we just flip, 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 flip. An hour later, we're like, oh, it's bedtime. We didn't watch anything. That's your show. Yeah, that's, that's the show. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like picking a show is already enough of a show. And it's the same thing in life. You're going through most of your life just trying to choose the direction that you want to go into. So the way that I say is the best method to find the, the show that you want is just watch two or three minutes of it, you know, and it's the same, you know, of all of the ones that you like and then kind of go into it. And it's the same way that they do it in college, right? They expose you to things that you might be interested in and things that you shouldn't even maybe have, but you've got to do because they're electives. And what you do is when you do all of these different things, eventually you'll find that niche, you know, but you just got to, you got to start, like you got to at least get going and do something first. You're going to find out that you don't like this one thing as you, as you pursue it. And you're going to be like, I'm not good at that. That's another thing that was super important for me is I was very honest with myself. And I said, I suck at a lot of things. I don't want to do these things. Like these are not things that are fun for me. I'm in fact, you mentioned real estate. And, and again, I'll be honest too. Like I don't enjoy being a real estate professional. I, I really don't want to be a real estate professional. I just want to be a real estate investor. I don't want to be a real estate professional. I don't want to show properties. I don't want to work on contracts. I don't want to manage the customer service of the relationships with the tenants. I don't want to do that stuff. I want to put money to work. So my focus is learning how to be a great investor and then hiring and overseeing people that are real estate professionals that do that work for me. Right. That's the main, that's the main difference. Um, so as, as, as you become more honest with yourself on what you're good at and what you're not good at, you immediately know where you need to replace yourself. And that's, that's where the, the success starts to take, take form for sure. As P Diddy said, what did he say? The game is hiring people to do the work for you. It's not doing <laughs> the work yourself. He's, he's, he's not wrong. Um, you mentioned decision fatigue. Um, and it's really interesting because Steve Jobs was known to wear jeans and a black shirt, like turtleneck, right? Same, same, same clothes again and again. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, same thing. And there was an, there was a study done on it. And it was because entrepreneurs of all have so many decisions. We're constantly facing decisions. So this is a real thing in my life. So I was reading this article. This actually happened. I'm sitting with my wife and it's really funny. And um, I'm reading this article that talked about how entrepreneurs like to wear the simplest clothes and they repeat the same clothes again and again. And I'm like reading it to her and I'm looking at her. I'm like, huh. I'm like, well, that's, this is an interesting uh, theory. I'm like, what do you think? 
You think this is true? I was genuinely asking. And she looks at me, she started laughing. And I'm like, what? She's like, oh, you're being serious. I'm like, yeah. She's like, um, why don't you just look, look down real quick? I swear I was wearing a, this black t-shirt and jeans. And it's what I wear every single day of my life. The reason I do it is because I can just pop a shirt on over top. Super easy. And like, I'm ready to like, you know, film an episode or whatever. Total decision fatigue. I go home. And it's like, once I'm like done with the day, a question as small as what do you want for dinner can like, just, it could just like unveil me. I'm just like, I, I don't, I just, I'm done. Like I've made enough decisions. Um, I'm at church. They asked me to volunteer. They, they're like, oh my God, you should lead this volunteer group or that group. And I'm like, yo, I am, this is the place I come to follow. I am not leading crap. Like I don't want more things. So you're 1000% correct. We have hit decision fatigue. Um, and I, and I would implore people to start, take some of those decisions and automate the crap out of them, man. Like, you know, I, I tell you what, um, I can't, I tried intermittent fasting. I can't, it's not really my thing. I can't do it. I need something in the morning, but instead of having a serious breakfast, being rushed, having to get to work, I just, there are some protein bars I love that are healthy and I just grab one and I eat it every morning. It makes me happy. That's my breakfast. Most days, my lunch is chicken, rice, and veggies or chicken and veggies. That's so I'm just like, as much of my life as I don't need to like think about, I'm trying to get to that place and it's made me happier. So really fascinating point you made there. So everyone get more educated and pay attention to decision fatigue. Um, so Richard, again, to kind of take our conversation in a different element, you're, you're, you've got a lot of companies, you know, different, like what, uh, you went from banking, you quit school, you made it high up in the banking, and then you went to talent recruitment. I find that to be an interesting transition. What's up with that? How did that come to? And then kind of walk us straight from that to like today you have, I know you have a company where you place virtual assistants. You have a company where you teach, I think it's trading, and then you have a real estate investing business. So yeah, walk us through the rest of that journey and how one thing led to another. Sure. Yeah, I um, so when I left Merrill Lynch in 2012, uh, I stopped working for about a year, year and a half, something like that, trading stocks, um, just enjoying life a little bit. I had already made a pretty good amount of money in the stock market for the first few years, basically from 2009 to 2012. I bought myself in 2011, I bought myself my first property and it was a tax deed property um, that I had just purchased from an auction and it was a triplex. So I had basically taken a good portion, about 50% of the portion of the money that I had from trading stocks and I put it into this investment. And then kind of typical rookie mistake, I took the rest of the money and I bought myself a house, a personal house for me to, to live in. And uh, it was a it was a mistake because I I couldn't afford that house because I was yeah you know, I got a little cocky from a money perspective I wasn't working anymore um, I was uh, you know I was house hacking the house that I lived in with like three buddies of mine one of the guys was a systems engineer um, and then the other two were just you know uh, buddies of mine that were kind of working. Uh, customer service kind of base jobs and stuff. And I wasn't working. I was just trading. And I had already used all of my money to go in on these two properties. And so I, I kind of said, damn, I have to I have to get a job again because I'm out of money now. I, I can't trade stocks. I don't have cash. 
And I also, um, at that time, I also um, had just been dating my my wife. Now, my you know, my wife for the last eleven years. But my my wife at the time was you know she was eighteen years old, and I was twenty two. So, um, and we got pregnant in a month and a half after we got together. So um, obviously fell in love and head over heels and the whole thing. But, you know, I knew I was like, damn, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to spend money on a child. Like I have to spend money on a child. I have to take her to the doctor. We need health insurance. Like I was living single life, no health insurance, no, nothing. You know, I was just like hanging out. All right, party over. You know, everybody has to leave the house. I got to have a baby's room. So it got serious and adulthood hit me really fast. Um, so my buddy that was a cyber engineer or a systems engineer at the time, he hits me, you know, he hits me up and before he leaves and he says, listen, man, you should talk to one of the recruiters that I spoke to at this agency called Robert Half. They, um, they place people to work. And I'm like, all right. So I, I went and I spoke to them and they were giving me um, interviews with different financial companies. And I went to like an ADP interview and um they were paying like $12 an hour at the time for the job. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going to take this. Like I have two properties. I have three cars. I have a boat. I have all this stuff. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to go and take an $11 an hour job. You know, this is my mindset at the time. Hmm. And uh, when I go to the recruiter, the guy tells me, he's like, look, man, you know, he brings in his vice president and he goes, Hey, you know, you're young, you look sharp. Um, you know, you're good with sales. Why don't you do headhunting? And I was like, headhunting. Like I've never, I didn't even know that that was like a way to make money. He's like, you see Tommy right here. Tommy's made $300,000 this year. How old are you, Tommy? He's like, I'm 23. It's like, he's made $300,000 this year from headhunting. He makes 20% on every person that he places. And I was like, damn, these guys are making a lot of money. So they gave me like a $40,000 base salary and commission on all of the headhunting placements that I did. So that year I became rookie of the, I, I was there for about my, my 2014, basically. So 2013 going into 2014, um, I became rookie of the year and I made over a million bucks in sales for the business. And I became, I had a six figure production for myself and I was on track for about $120,000 income for that year, but grinding like hundred dollars a day. And my, my niche, my focus was I was in Fort Lauderdale and my focus was to hire. First, it was Cat5, then it was Fiber, then it started to become a full end, front, uh, fr front end, back end, full stack software engineers. It became like, um, you know, uh, data warehouse engineers. It became uh, data scientists and it, the, the level of, of information and complexity started to grow as I started to take on more customers because. There was more money in finding these niche de uh, developers or designers for these companies that needed the work. So as I started to see the opportunities um, from calling some of these clients, we would just call clients that had listings on Indeed. So we just call clients that had listings on Indeed that said, we need a full stack software engineer. We call the HR department and say, hey, uh, I have somebody. And then I would call somebody on CareerBuilder, which was back at that time. I call somebody at CareerBuilder.com. I hit up their resumes and I would just say, hey, man, I got a job for you. And then I would put them into conversation and I'd make 20% of their, of their salary. So a buddy of mine took my resume and sent it over to um, a recruiter in San Francisco at a company called Solar City at the time. They just got a bunch of funding. And I was, you know, I, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to get an, uh, an interview. I got, I went to three rounds of interviews with the recruiters at the time and I, I got the job. So 
I packed up my stuff in two weeks. I sold, I sold basically all the things in my house, gave the rest of it away on Craigslist. Me and my wife, we picked up our stuff and we had a one, a one-year-old child that was, you know, just, um, you know, a, a baby at the time. And we moved, we got into a one bedroom apartment, little, little crappy spot in, in SF, very expensive, like three grand, you know, for a, for a little one bedroom, you know, 800 square foot place. And I just, um, I just started grinding away for solar city. And I did that for about, uh, two years before the company got purchased out. I was very early solar city. So I got a lot of stock in the company and, um, I hired, I think about a thousand people, a little bit less, but right about a thousand people for solar city. Yeah. So in my, in my, in my four years at, at solar city, which it's, we don't refer to it as solar city anymore. Now we refer to it as Tesla, right? Because Tesla bought out solar city. So then they absorbed the name and they said, Hey, everybody, we no longer refer to it as solar city anymore. We refer to it as Tesla. It's now Tesla and Tesla energy. So I worked at Tesla for two years. My first uh, two years at Solar City, I worked directly for the CTO, and the CTO was um, Pete Rive, which is Elon's cousin. So it's so I got to hang. I I became best friends with him. You know, we played soccer on Thursdays. His kids would hang out with my kids, and we would hang out in the you know in, in Potrero Hill and in, in in the city. And that became like a billionaire was my my friend. You know, so that was a super that was super fascinating times. And I started building out his teams, and there was so many interesting stories I could tell you about the internals of Tesla and Solar City and that dynamic and everything. It's freaking amazing. Um, and there's a lot of marketing that goes into a lot of those offerings. You know, a lot of marketing that goes into those those companies. That's for sure. So, um, anyways, we're working on this crazy revolutionary product called the Solar Rooftop at the time, which was basically going to become like the next gen solar uh, system that's uh, replacing the old aesthetic version of those panels that are on a roof. And instead they're going to be now solar photovoltaic tiles that are going to be on top of a roof and they're going to be charged by the sun and also by the power pack or a power wall that's inside of your garage. So my job was to hire the teams and the engineers that would build all that stuff. Right. So my first two years was focused on that. Then we released it in the second year. And then we got bought out by Tesla. And then my third year and my fourth year um, was integrating the Powerwall uh, engineer engineering side of the business to the uh, Dragon capsules at SpaceX. So that was again that was like my second like big task, right? And and so then I I got a job um, working at SpaceX, um, and I was going to take that that job and go to, down to Hawthorne. So I was going to move down there. And I'd already been, I'd moved three different cities for Tesla. So I had gone from Palo Alto to San Francisco twice, um, to Sacramento, to Las Vegas. So I was traveling like crazy because we were building in all these different facilities in Reno. Um, so I, I had a lot, you know, I, I, I had a team of, of recruiters that were under me by year three at that point and on the energy engineering side of things. So, um, yeah, so my, my job was to work with Elon. I would send him engineers. He would basically interview them. I would get feedback on how that, those experiences went. He would always ask me the same question, which was rich. Why is this engineer better than any of the other engineers that we have on the team right now? And then I would have to answer that by calling the engineer and basically saying, why do you think, why do you think you're better than our engineers that we currently have on the team right now? And then, um, and then we would either hire them or, or we wouldn't. Right. So I, I was accountable for a lot of those, a lot of those hires. Dude, that's fascinating. I did not know you work. I mean, you worked pretty much with Elon then. You were having 
back and forth communication with Elon Musk. That's a pretty interesting. Um, wh- what was he like? Is he is he as crazy as people say? As as focused, crazy, and just you know. Uh, um, he's he's a so we call I call him EJM. So that's that's what he goes based off of. Um, and Pete goes by by Pete. Um, and those were my kind of like my main guys that I would send them my engineering talent. Um, Elon was, you know, I remember one time he came into a room and he did duck, duck, duke, duck, duck, goose with all the people that were inside that room. And I was sitting on the side and he basically was like, okay, now you tell me what are the problems in the business. And now you tell me what are the problems in the business. Um, he did another thing one time where he, you know, we were deploying an offering, we were deploying like a major product and there was an engineering team in San Rafael that we were, um, building out this product and it was incredible. And he went to go see it and he said, it's garbage. It's trash. And he, he, you know, he made everybody, everybody look, uh, and feel bad. And then, um, released the product two days later because he had another engineering team that he had, um, constructed that was basically building the exact same product, just better in a completely different other facility somewhere else. And he had them competing with each other. So he had backup, he has backups on everything. So if there's one team that's working on something, he has another team working somewhere else that's also working on the exact same product to see if they can make it better. And, and the two teams never know about each other. They don't know who the other team no, is. They have no idea. They have no idea that they, that they exist. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was, uh, and then he, de- he deployed the product in the, um, uh, a deep, um, uh, uh, like deep in the universal studios, uh, like through three gates, you had to go through three different gates to get there. And it was a universal studios. It was the real housewives of orange County. Like there, like there was like a studio, uh, house that, that we used to use to display the solar rooftop and the solar rooftop didn't really work yet. It was not fully completed, but he had promised the world that he was going to show them a revolutionary product. So he did at, at this kind of like twilight sunset, he lit up the whole house, which was actually a studio inside of Universal Studios. And it wasn't actually a real, it wasn't a real product at the time. It looked great, but it didn't work. It didn't work at all. So oh, um, and then he took pre-orders that day for billions of dollars worth of, of money on, on, that, on that offering. So that was, um, that was just genius marketing. You know, he did, he did a great job. Borderline, borderline lying, <laughs> but okay, that's yeah. Well, is that public knowledge now, or is this like, is this episode the breaking news where it's leaking out? I would hope, I would hope that not. I don't know how many people watch this, man. <laughs> I, I, I mean, let's hope that it doesn't get released too much, but you know, I might get in trouble. <laughs> oh man, that's uh. Well, I, look, uh, say what they will about Elon. I mean, I, I, people would say he's a brilliant technical brilliant engineer brilliant inventor i agree i actually think he's a brilliant marketer i think that's probably his his number one strong suit is he knows how to get attention create attention um the human psyche it's just it's very obvious that he understands um i mean it's obvious from just like his tweets i mean if anyone just reads his tweets he's playing with us all the time like it's just he's just you know dance puppets is what he's doing um but i didn't know that it didn't come up in my research of of you before was like your work directly with with elon and tesla that's that's really amazing how long ago was that from today to like how long ago was it i started solar city in 2000 uh early 2015 and then uh, I left, well, I left Tesla uh, the beginning of 2018. So oh, right after model. Yeah, not 
not long ago. And and you and you, I'm gonna assume you ended up doing really well because you said you had a lot of stock in Solar City and it got bought out by Tesla. So was that a big part of like kind of a injection of wealth in your personal net worth as well? Yeah, when I started at at Tesla or when I started at Solar City, I had a, a pretty good amount and I kept on getting these bonuses and then I got a retention when the company uh, was bought out. Um, and the stock, at least when I converted in, Tesla was uh, at about $90 a share, something around that. So, okay. and this was, this was pre-split. So, um, so it was, yeah, it was a good amount. It was a good amount of. So, so um, I was, so gosh, man, one day, here's what we're going to do. If you're cool with it one day, we'll have you back. And I want to do an entire episode on just what it's like to work for Elon Tesla and just that, that culture. I did not know that. Had I known that, so much more of this episode would have been focused on that. But I, I actually really wanted to focus on you and your story. But I would love to focus a little bit and do another episode where we're just like, because I don't know anyone that's worked for Elon. You're the first person I've met. So, um, and not just Elon, but like the culture of Tesla. Um, I think that you can watch a lot of videos about it. You can hear like the good, the bad. I read, I read the biography that someone wrote. And just like I, the only part of the biography that stuck out at me, and I guess you would have been there to experience this, and you would have been in the HR, was like him and his his assistant, and how he fired his assistant who had been with him forever, um, and then he just like took over her job and was just like I don't need you anymore. And I remember just reading that story and going, damn, that's just like it's ruthless. But um, I'm I'm on the fan side of Elon, so you know I'm I'm I just think he's I think he's doing amazing stuff, but. For sure, behind people that are that intense, there's just got to be some interesting stories and just like, you know, I'm sure a lot of amazing stuff. Um, so one day we'll get you back. We're going to talk about that. But for now, so that was not long ago. 2018, you left. And last I read, there was an article about you. I was reading that you've amassed over $10 million worth of real estate. Um, did you do that post leaving? Did you immediately start buying a ton of real estate in 2018 or were you doing it as you went kind of part-time while you had this job? Yeah, so I, when things got really rocky at Solar City and we didn't know if Tesla was gonna buy us out or not, and there really wasn't any buyers there, I started to think about what I was gonna do with my life if I had to go and look for either another job or if, you know, if I had to transition. So one of my main focuses at that time was how much money do I have saved up and what can I do with it how much equity do I have in some of the properties that I already own? And what could I do with that? You know, I've been sitting on a few properties that had been either rented or I had, you know, a brother living inside one of the units or something. They weren't really like super cash flowing, but they were doing, they were doing okay. They were just maintaining themselves. Um, but it was time to kind of get serious about my investments. And when I left, when I left uh uh solar when Solar City was purchased by Tesla, this was about 2016. And I started buying real estate at that time. So 2016, 2017. So I hadn't bought any real estate from 2012, basically, which was my second, my personal house, um, all the way until 2016. So I had I'd gone like on a you know a long sabbatical there for a while on, on the real estate side, and um, and then I, I you know I actually it's funny because I I picked up rich rich dad poor dad the book again for the second time. Yeah. And I said, you know, let me read this thing because a buddy of mine was reading it. And he's like, you know, here, take this, man. You know, think about it. And I was like, all right. So I read it again and I just got like halfway through it. And I was like, I got to get back into this thing again. This is serious. Yeah. So um, so I got into real estate. When I got into Google, um, that's where things got, um, 
you know, I started to see my exit, like my exit was starting to get more, much more clear. You know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to scale up here. And when I got into Facebook, that's where I was like, all right, I think I'm done. I, I might not need to work anymore. You know, I, I have enough coming in from real estate that I don't need to do. So, so 2018, when you quit Tesla, you went to work for Google and then you went to work for Facebook. So you, and then in so 2019, you, I went to Facebook. All right. So like, are, am I going to find out that you like directly are friends with Mark Zuckerberg, worked for Mark Zuckerberg, you know, like Sergey from Google. Like, I feel like, like the international mystery man here. What's going on? Yeah, you, you, hey, all right. No. All right. Good. Cause this is going to, this is going to have to become a three hour episode then if that's what you unveil, man, because I'm going to, I'm going to dive into all of it. I mean, I, I worked close to Zuckerberg, but I didn't work um with with him directly no i mean i was very close to elon and i was very close to pete but i wasn't when i left uh when i left tesla i did not have to interview to get a job at google i was already hired because we were working with google to integrate the the tesla products and the tesla features onto the google home devices so that way you could just say hey google um how how much is my tesla charged right now you know and so then it can give you that data and it can tell you on these iPads basically how much was was charged. So they just brought me on. They were just like, hey, you know, from literally one day to the next, I came over to Google. They gave me a crazy offer. You know, it was like, in, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm taking this. And uh, and so, I yeah, I took that. I took that job and uh, I was still buying real estate at the time. So I was I was buying real estate. I was using cash out refinances to go and um, scale up my real estate portfolio. And I did, um, my job at, at Google was to hire, imagine this was years ago. My job at Google was to hire artificial intelligence engineers. So that was my job. My job was to hire artificial intelligence engineers from Microsoft that had been working at Microsoft for 15 years. There was only a few of them in the market. I think, I think, I think they just got fired recently. <laughs> I saw the article from Microsoft where they let go of a bunch of their AI people. Um, wow. That wasn't that long ago. You say, oh, it was years ago. It was like three years ago. <laughs> It wasn't like that long ago. When did you quit quit? When were you like, yo, I'm done. No Google, no Facebook, no Elon, no nobody. I'm entrepreneur. I'm on my own. What year was that? I dude, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur, to be honest with you. Like I, I just wanted to, I just I never got into like my job, my my goal was to replace my working income with money from real estate and not work. I'm just like I'm lazy. I didn't want to, I didn't want to work for anybody. I didn't want to do any work. I, I wanted to hang out on a beach, which is what I do now. And I like, that's all I, that's all I wanted to do. So my mission was figure out how to do that, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, so in the, uh, the middle of 2019, uh, I left Facebook and I went, you know, I, I did, uh, I finished up a couple of little small gigs with Andreessen Horowitz that I was working on a couple of like, uh, hires for them on some startups that they were doing. Um, they got a couple, a couple cool funding, uh, you know, things like Brex and, um, health IQ and a couple of other like interesting projects that they had going on some AI technology projects. And then, um, me and Val, you know, my wife were just like, you know, I told her I just bought this like 10 unit building and I already owned like 10 other properties. So I was at like 40 apartments at the time. And I had a property manager and a team and, you know, and, and trucks that were managing my real estate going back and forth to all my properties. And I'm taking calls in between doing all this like headhunting and networking and stuff in San Francisco. And I'm like, you know, I, I looked at my wife and I said, we just bought this 10 unit property now. 
Um, it's free and clear. It's, you know, it's, it's a more than a million bucks in cash that we that we paid for this thing. You know, all of this real estate's in Miami, which is the highest grossing rent right now. The you know some of the fastest growing real estate in the market. It's up twenty percent just in the last year. Um, so it was a great time to be buying in that, in those, in that period. Mm-hmm. And, um, I told her, I'm like, you know, we're making like 50, we're making $47,000. It was exact $47,000 a month in real estate. So after all the costs and the mortgages and everything, we have about like 25 grand that we're making. And I'm working for about that right now, full time. And we're paying for the two kids daycare, we have a third kid on the way, you know, we have all these costs in San Francisco. Let's just, let's just leave. You know, we, we got enough money. We can go anywhere we want. So the first thing we did was, you know, we obviously, we mold that over for a little bit, but we left in uh, October of uh, 2019 and we moved to South America. So we just like wow. said, all right, picked up our stuff and we went to South America and we went to Colombia to go hang out because Val's from Colombia. So she's like, I haven't seen my family for years. Let's go see them. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'd never really met them before. So I'm like, let's, yeah, let's, let's do it. Um, you know, kids will learn Spanish. That's what I'm thinking. So anyways, we go out there and, uh, um, you know, pandemic hits like two months later. And the moment the pandemic hits, <clears throat> I'm like, okay, well, I mean, we're stuck in Colombia, but you know, it's going to be a good time. So, uh, so we stayed there for a while and, um, it was interesting because that's where a lot of my kind of social media career started. You know, it was I basically I was just on LinkedIn. I was already pretty popular on LinkedIn. I had like 40, 50,000 connections on LinkedIn from posting jobs from Google and, and Tesla and Facebook. Oh, okay. yeah, so everybody wanted a job at those companies. So the, everybody was following me from, from SF. So I was like posting my properties that I was either closing on or doing renovations on on LinkedIn. So I would post them. And people would hit me up and they'd say, hey, man, I'm interested in this. And I'd say, go to my Instagram and check out some of the other project stuff I'm doing. I'm doing a bathroom. I'm working on a kitchen. And now, you know, I've grown, you know, I'm going on like, you know, half a million followers already in those in those last three years. So it's been a big it's been a big run up. I think I'm growing now at like a thousand a thousand people a day. You know, it's like 30 to 40,000 people a month. So so this pandemic turned you into an influencer, which I'm guessing is then from there. Now you have all these people that are following you and you're like, all right, they want to give me money. They want to learn from me. So there you go. I'm, I'm going to launch a, a teaching company, education company to teach them how I do this real estate stuff and how I do all the cash flow stuff. Is that kind of a short TLDR synopsis of how you, be, you know, how you launched all these companies now? I, I actually, yeah. So my first company, it, it wasn't education. So everybody told me to get into education because they were upset that I was holding so much information and I wasn't like sharing it on a daily basis with them. And every time I would jump on a live session or I would post a video, they would always ask me questions like, hey, well, how did you do this? Or well, how'd you get the price for that price? Or what was the contract? Or what was the contingencies? I'm like, dude, they're just like, make a course or make a guide or make something. And I'm like, all right, fine. I mean, this was years ago too. So uh, of course, like for now it's the common thing where everybody has courses. But at that time, it was one of very few people that was in the real estate game that was coming up with education. Um, But my main business at that time was actually doing wholesaling. So I brought in a bunch, I brought in $30 million off of Instagram in the first year. And I only had like 50,000 followers at the time 
Um, but what I did was deal raises and we did these things called co-investing. Basically all the people that were coming in on Instagram during 2020 and 2021, um, I would just have deals that I was either connected to an owner on or an investor on, um, or somebody that would hit me up in the DMs like, Hey man, I'm trying to sell this property. And I would then connect them to buyers. And I was taking, um, you know, basically like broker transactions on those deals. And um, yeah, we did in that first year, we did about 30 million in, in broker deals, um, seven figures of, of funding in, um, in wholesale fees. And then that stemmed out to saying, well, hey, if you're doing all these deals, can you help me manage the property? So then I was like, all right. So then I started a property management business. And that property management business, I started bringing on more trucks and more support there. And the property managers would start, you know, they were managing all of the customers or really like the, the, the investors that were coming in from the wholesale deals. So now it was a service that was not just finding them a deal and raising the money to buy the deal, but then it was also managing the properties for them as well so that they wouldn't have to do it so they can invest maybe from a distance. After I did the property management, some of them were, they would graduate and they'd be like, well, I have 10, 15, 20 apartments, or I only have two apartments and I want to do this myself. So that's where I started a virtual assistant company that does property management virtually. So Okay. That's where I then position VAs that work with the people that graduated from, let's say, my property management support that's a little bit more expensive. Instead, they hire their own VA that are already under our wing, that already know and they use all our systems, they use our tools, they use our contracts, and they have like an internal manager that manages them to make sure that it's, you know, all bookkeeping and property management related. So very organic. It's like yeah. just... You're watching the demand. It's coming in from people. You're like, all right, fine, I'll do this. I'll support. And that's been like your career all along. <laughs> so you're kind of just yeah. kind of going around. You're like, oh, okay, like this, this, okay, great. I have two final questions. All right. Question number one, you've done so many diverse things from 18 years old, opening banks to recruiting for a recruiter to then being buddies with Elon and his and his uh, cousin and recruiting for them directly to recruiting for Google, to recruiting for Facebook, to now being successful as an entrepreneur, successful as an influencer. What the hell is it? What's the secret? Is it just, what, what is it about you that you seem to do whatever you do, you just climb to the top of it. Is it just grind? Do you just, do you put the hours in? Do you put the hard work in? Is there a certain way you approach things? There's, are you, is your IQ like 190? Like what's going on? Why do you win at everything that you're doing? I'm, I actually, I lose on nine out of the 10 things that I do. You know, it's just, I, I don't see them about as, the wins. Yeah. Well, I, I, we're talking about the wins, but there was a lot of losses on the way up for sure. And there's still losses on the way up as well. I think the big thing that, um, that does account for the wins that they're, they're so massive is just the fact that, you know, I consider myself really adaptable. You know, I, I, I look at the market, I understand um, I understand people well, you know, as a recruiter, you need to, you're a professional interviewer. So you're talking to people basically on a daily basis. And, you know, especially when you're working at the highest levels where the people that you're interviewing are multi-million dollar AI engineers, like, you know, you're working with an Elon Musk that's interviewing you while you're talking to him. Um, you know, these are, you have to be very conscious. So you have to be very adaptable. And, and that's one thing that I've always been, um, adaptability at, at its core, but again, I'll go back to the thing that if if I was, if you asked me, hey, Rich, like what has been the real true kind of 
um, little spark, that success, that, that, that one, that one thing that has worked for you, it's really just been like being honest with myself again, going back to it and saying, I don't want to do these things. So I have to figure out who is good at them that I can have help me do these things. Right. Mm -hmm. To do a wholesale deal, for example, when I jump on a call and I do a wholesale deal and I'm trying to raise money for a $2 million building, let's just say to get that, 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 uh, that wholesale fee or that, that deal funded, I'm not jumping on there by myself. I'm bringing on an attorney that I paid maybe two or $300 for. And I'm like, if this guy that's on the other side, that's a buyer asks me questions that I don't know, can you be there and answer them for me? Because I just don't know the answers to them. And it's like, well, if you pay me for the hour, I'll be there, you know? So paying sometimes to get the benefit of someone else's trust and knowledge is an incredible form of leverage that you should take advantage of, right? Like for example, this situation here, we're we're doing a podcast and you have an audience that is diehard and that supports you and loves you. And when I come and meet with you, some of them might come to me, you know, and some might say, hey man, I'm really interested in this guy and what he's doing. And so the power there is, lever- there's a leverage effect because I'm leveraging the trust you've built, all your brand equity that you've had with your customer base or your, your support system. They're going to now see me, you know, and that um, that's a very powerful tool to have. So um, I'd rather go to the expert, right? Than, than, be, than be the expert myself, to be honest with you. No, that's brilliant. Last last question, my friend. What took you to Indonesia? Are you on travels? Do you live there? You say you spent all your time on beaches, Colombia to Indonesia. Was there something that triggered that? Or why are you in Indonesia? I guess that's my short question. I'm in Bali right now, the island of the gods. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, last year we did 12 countries, right? And, and I took the three kids and the, and the wife, we did basically just one after another from Spain to Croatia to you name it, you know, we went to all these different spots. Um, and you know, we live a pretty nomadic life because the money that comes in from real estate pays for all of the cost of our living. I don't have a car. I haven't had a license since like 2014 or something like that. My wife has never had a driver's license. Um, we have a nanny that travels with us that we brought from Colombia. So she just goes everywhere and, and ma- ma- manages the kids. We homeschool our children. We've always done that since day one. Um, so all their curriculum is in-house and my wife is the teacher, but also we have a teacher that, that also, um, you know, comes and teaches the kids as well. Um, we don't have a car, so we have a driver. So he drives us everywhere we, we need to go. You know, we try to live really as like as simple as we can by outsourcing to everybody all of the responsibilities that we just don't want to do. And what we do is we use the income from the real estate to offset that so that me and my my wife can go and have a good time. We can enjoy our lives together. Um, you know, because if not, we'll be a slave. We'll be a, she'll be a slave to the kitchen. She'll be a slave to the cooking. She'll be a slave to the house. She'll be a slave to the kids. Not to say that it's a bad thing, but we we would be a, it would be more tension on our relationship we wouldn't have been able to have such a nice life and go and do all the things we wanted to if we didn't um outsource all of these things on a daily basis so now we have like a staff of 12 people they manage all of our stuff on in the house she's the manager of the people in the house um i'm the manager of the people in the business the business is is 30 people so um you know we have a team of almost 50 people you know and that's that's a lot of people to take care of there's families to feed 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I my rule is work two hour, two hours a day, you know, two hours a day, um, spend the rest of the time with the family. Right. So that's, that's been my goal. Amazing, man. Richard, it's been an absolutely fascinating episode. Really. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from you, learned a lot about you. I mean, it. we're going to have you back. I want to talk about the, some of the other parts of your life. Cause I feel like there's parts that we did miss out on. Uh, tell everybody who's listening right now where they can learn more about you, follow you, learn from you, websites, social media links, please throw anything out so that they can find you. Sure. Um, you can look me up as Richard Garcia official on either Instagram or, um, on YouTube. So I, you know, I have an, an audience on both sides. You can look me up as Richard Garcia. Uh, maybe you could look up Google or Tesla um as um you know as a little uh, key key term uh, on linkedin and uh you can also find any of my companies on on google as well under richard garcia I'm the only one that comes up so uh so yeah and also uh if you want to read my book um i have an entire book that i wrote when during pandemic so um i was just bored and i was like i'm going to write a book about all my experiences so it highlights everything and I'll give it to anybody that was on here for free. So if you want it, um, you know, I'll send it over to you. So just send me a message. Yes, there you go, guys. Go find him on uh, Instagram or YouTube. Send him a message and get the book. I, I know, sure as heck I will. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Everybody look up Richard Garcia Official uh, on Instagram. I was actually watching some of his stuff. Really awesome videos. Close to half a million followers. So connect with him there. For the rest of you, I don't know, man. What, 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 what excuses do we have to make one thing successful? When we've got Richard here making many things successful, just go out there, put the work in, and keep the inspiration up. This is Anik, as I always say, you know what I always say, when life pushes you, stand straight, smile, and push it the heck back. We'll see you on the next episode. Love you guys. Talk to you later. Bye.